Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Zoe Pollock. You can find her online at zoepollock.com. Zoe is a wife, a mother of two, and an artist and industrial designer based in Vancouver, BC. This was a conversation I'd been looking forward to for a while, and it was a rich exploration into many topics. Zoe found out she was pregnant when she was 24 and had just graduated art school. She subsequently built a very successful art career while raising two children. We talked about her journey through it all, the ups, the downs, the challenges, and the faith it takes to make it out the other side as an entrepreneur. We talked deeply about relationships and personal growth, and Zoe's path to sobriety and how she found new joy in team sport and yoga. Ultimately, we wound up in a conversation about spirituality, God, and meaning. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you do, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. You can follow me on Instagram, at Steve Rio. And if you're interested in learning how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system to help you live life to its fullest. You can find us online at natureofwork.co or on Instagram at the same, at natureofwork.co. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome. Thanks, Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. You and I have um, pretty wide-ranging conversations and it's they've evolved over the years I think yeah thank god (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting yeah um yeah we've been friends since we met in like 2010 or something like that cheaper 10 right so 2009 yeah so uh, 10 years 10 years yeah it's a decade amazing that's cool um I start with this question quite often. I'm, I'm interested. Um, there is Zoe's bio that lives on your website or I don't know if you have, do you have a LinkedIn profile? No, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Do you, maybe I'll ask your people. Someone, yeah, I'll, I'll ask people. Um, what's, how would you describe yourself that, that is different than the bio that shows up, say on your website or something like that? Well, I think that I spend a lot more time in my spiritual life than people probably know. People who are close to me would know that, but um, I spend a lot of time thinking, reading, writing, praying, and uh, much more than a hobby. You know, it's like a big, big, big part of who I am. Hmm. And a lot of people online are surprised to find out that I'm a mom as well. So, oh, really? I am. Yeah. They I don't know the mom side of you. Yeah, I, I, I keep it offline mostly, and so people, yeah, I don't totally know that. 
Yeah, and I guess most people's uh, assumption looking at you, I just looking at your new brochure, which is beautiful, and might not even be able to fathom the fact that you've done all of this while raising two kids. Yeah, I think so. And I think because um, a lot of people in our generation or our age group are just having young children now, they wouldn't know sort of that they, that we had them so early and that they're, you know, I have a teenager and, mm-hmm. you know, we have a, we're in a whole different place than a lot of our peers. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think it looks a lot easier online maybe than it actually was, <laughs> which, you know. <laughs> no shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how old were you when you had... I was 24 when I found out I was pregnant with Sienna. Wow. Yeah. So, um, and then we had Kale. We were, I was, I think I was 28. So it's pregnant at 27 with our second. Yeah. Were you already pursuing a career in art? Did you know that that was a trajectory you're on when you found out you're pregnant? Was it? I was just finishing art school. So I had just, just, just graduated from college. So a lot of like why I've done what I've done has been really tied to having to do what I had to do for a living, you know? And so a lot of people, I guess, also interpret what I'm doing as like living this dream, which in many ways it is, but it's very much always been a livelihood. You know, it's very Uh much always been a business. And that is tied to having children early, but also just literally having no other skills early on. I was a waitress. The last thing I was was a waitress, you know, when I was 24. I waitressed till I was seven and a half months pregnant with our daughter, so... I didn't really have a lot to go back on. So I think that limitation of choice um, created a lot of pain. But I also see that that's been like a big reason why I've been successful. Mm. I've been very focused, you know. Yeah. What does that mean for your relationship with your craft in general? Like it must have, it was born out of some, obviously some passion. You were in art school, but also necessity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those things are uh, interwoven and living with that, like having the capacity to live with that paradox has been my strength. That has been, um, also a deep place of, of pain and a lot of introspection. So if you think about somebody living their passion, um, I mean, I don't necessarily recommend that everybody go and make their passion, their livelihood. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's wonderful now. Now I have hobbies and I can see, I'm like, oh, I guess people do this because they really just enjoy it, not because you want or need something. You, you have to achieve certain results out of a livelihood that it's a lot of pressure to apply to something that you love. Yeah, I think about the average 24-year-old coming out of art school, maybe working a side job, maybe living at home. Maybe she cut her own hair. Whatever, you know. and she's having, <laughs> she's doing her thing. And she's seeing if art's a thing. And I don't know, 80% of those people or 90% of those people end up doing something else. Um, Yeah. Maybe because they don't have the pressure of making it a thing. Um, But also just having the freedom to uh, explore it as a true, just as simple, simply as a passion. And that's really interesting how different that was for you. Yeah, I think I've had sort of two experiences with that. One, I just spent the last four years living in Montreal where people's living cost is a lot lower. So there's a lot of artists and they're able to actualize a lot of work. So they're making really beautiful work. They're able to participate in really amazing graffiti or do group shows or or actualize a lot of things, manifest stuff, you know, make it happen, do that book of poems and do experimental stuff. 
um, because the cost of living is so low and there's not as much pressure on them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think another way that I've been able to see that unfold is in the young people that I've hired. When I lived in Montreal over that time of four years, I hired seven people and I saw them, they all happened to be young women. And um, I saw them also doing their um, artwork practice while working for me. And I think the biggest thing that I showed them was the pragmatism that was required in order to make, like to have, see that thing have longevity. Um, I think they learned a lot in the studio about how practical you have to be about your cash flow and different things like that. Um, and, and I think they learned a lot of, a lot of what they learned, I guess, I think was really surprised them, you know, <laughs> it was re- really different from the act of making, you know, just right. creatively expressing oneself is very different than delivering something to a client or meeting a deadline or shipping something, et cetera. Yeah, especially when it's art and it's so personal to you and then suddenly have to turn around and make commerce of it. And yeah. that, and that's a completely different exchange. I, I mean, I went through that with my music career yeah. and ultimately decided that music, I didn't have it in me to commercialize my music that way. Yeah. But perhaps I also didn't have the, I made websites as well and people would yeah. rather pay me for that. Apparently. Yeah. I think, I mean, I have two streams of income within my career, multiple streams of income. And so I think that, um, there's commercial work that I make that is still true to me and true to my soul and et cetera, but it's a lot more relaxing, easy to make. I'm not digging super deep into my personal narratives, et cetera, for that type of work. I'm delivering something, um, to a client that maybe like matches their couch and is within their price range. And, um, and I really enjoy that work because it feeds the other work. And the other work is digging really, really deep into personal narratives and trying to find, is it, is it possible that what I'm experiencing is, can be both personal and universal? And I think there's a maturity that has unfolded in my more recent work, which has been like the vessels and the figures. Mm-hmm. Those are definitely more narrative. Um, and the, the sort of call to that as like a vocation and the responsibility that you feel to contributing to culture and the ways in which I feel an obligation um, and a responsibility to tell those stories so that other women know that they're seen and heard and other humans um, are seen and heard and can kind of unfold in front of that work. That's a whole other type of work. And those two sort of bodies of work, both the commercial and the personal, Mm -hmm. have to live under one umbrella, which is my name, which is what we've sort of tried to bring together as a studio. Yeah. I don't know whose quote it is, but there's an expression that says, what is most personal to you is often the most universal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen that. I've seen people, I've seen myself make something that was like so dark and so hard, um, and came from a place, um, that even I, it was a mystery unto myself, you know, to me. And I've seen people cry in front of my own work um, about their own stories. They have no idea what they, and then they sometimes with their own words expressed to me what that means. And it wasn't anything that I was, you know, thinking about, but, um, they can feel that, you know, we can feel each other. And, um, I've come to know that through, um, exhibiting my work and selling it. Wow. Have you had people unpack a narrative of your work that you weren't like you said, I've had that. I've had that in music where I wrote a song, and only years later do I realize what it was about. And you, it sounds like that's happened in your art, like or maybe not years, but you you 
you weren't sure where you you knew there was something dark there, but what was the actual narrative? Yeah, I think that what um, we you and I both have become more comfortable is, with is that um, time is not linear, and that there is a mystery in when, in the creative process. And being comfortable with both of those things um, has helped me to sort of not have. I never really had an expectation for how people would consume the work or see the work or feel the work. Um, that experience has, I've always had respect, I guess, for my viewer, for how they would um, come to that on their own terms. I'm, I'm very serious about that. You know, I, I feel very strongly that my work should be able to be approached by the human and that they're intelligent enough to, to have that experience on their own. But in terms of timing, it's really trippy because, for example, yesterday I sold a couple of vessels that I made a long, you know, like sort of almost a year ago. And this man is having this immediate experience with these paintings right now, yesterday, in this yeah, they're moment. they're brand new right? to him. Yes, exactly. Yes. And they're speaking to him in something that might be old or might be new. And I don't know. But um, we're connecting in this time that I don't have control over. Wow. That's super mm. interesting. Yeah, it's beautiful. And... Um, how has uh, your relationship with the idea of success, um, it's changed dramatically for you in the last decade, uh, my, is my guess. Um, and, it can, <laughs> and, it, and it continues to change. Um, well, first off, I'm interested what your 25-year-old self would think about where you're at today. Do you think your 25-year-old self knew that what you have achieved today was possible? I think that um, I know that I'm in a place where that I never thought was possible. It has very little to do with my career, you know. It has everything to do with um, and my sobriety and, and a peace that I have that I never thought was possible. And um, that that 25 year old was in such a shit show, you know. It was mm -hmm. it was such a hot mess. Um, and um, I think she came up, you know, just for just enough air to a couple times, you know, and, and I really, really stand under grace. So I'm moved because I'm still in shock. I'm still in awe, A, that we survived, you know, having children so young and having no money and, and fighting all the time. And just the turmoil and the difficulty of that time, I, I can't even believe that this is my life now mm -hmm. yeah. and i i heard you say somewhere else and, and i i reflect on this a lot in terms of relating success now to actually to peace not yeah. and we think when yeah. we're young and broken yeah. scrambling it's about money yeah. and it is in some respects yeah. like uh, yeah. you need a baseline um can you speak to that a little bit yeah you just mentioned peace yeah. as well yeah now. i think uh, you do, let's first, um, yeah, I think respectfully we need to mention that you do need a, a certain amount of money to live. And living below that line is incredibly stressful. You have to give all of your time and your effort and your energy to that uh, and when you feel that you have no time, effort, or energy left. So living um, broke all the time or month to month is incredibly exhausting and um, very demanding. Um so once, yeah, once you've achieved a certain amount of money, I mean, I think 
we're old enough now that we've been in these moments of so-called success. Maybe we had them written on our whiteboard or we had them written in our goals or we had told someone, our mentor that we'd wanted to achieve or whatever it was. And we sat there just completely broken or completely empty or exhausted and realized that that goal didn't um, match. I mean, for me, it was that the inside didn't match the outside. Now the inside matches the outside. And I'm very proud of that fact. And that to me is peace because there's no resistance between the person from the inside who's trying to move through their life. You have to overextend yourself and and fake it so much and you know get, drive yourself with so much op- a false optimism off, often um, in order to even just stay alive when you have no peace. It's just so tiring, you know. Yeah, and it takes a tremendous amount of energy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what about? Um peace in the home <laughs> I mean oh my gosh what about it <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it it's funny I have I have a 20 about 21 year old uh and uh so I went through the teenage years in my home uh, even even in the chaos of children I think that's one level of chaos versus peace but I think there can be peace in that, knowing that that is a, a process. I'm more interested in just, you've also been through lots of years through those really trying times as young parents with your husband, with things like having peace on on that front is uh, um, I think also a big contributor to feeling successful. Yeah, for sure. Like when you wake up, I mean, there's a few things. One, when I wake up in the morning, by 9 a.m., I can't even believe that I've accomplished everything that I've accomplished. Like, I just, <laughs> I feel like I should turn around and someone should hand me a medal. Like, I can't believe that I, like, fucked my husband and went and got went and exercised and flossed my teeth and made four lunches and had teenagers yell at me. And I just can't even, by 9.03 a.m., I just feel like such a champ, you know, such a, but also just like, it was, you know, some mornings you wake up and it's, it's peaceful, but family life, like domestic life, if you're looking for domestic life to provide you with peace, I mean, that's, that's hilarious. You know, that's why I laugh. It's, it's not, um, you know, it's, it's an unpredictable place. Mm -hmm. My home is an unpredictable place. And, at times it was more critical, you know, I think that we're out of that phase. That's why I can laugh. You know, we're out of anyone with small children, even if you have money and nannies and whatever. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a wild time and it's very difficult. And, um, you know, now we're in, we're in a new phase, but it's still, there's times when I don't know what I'm coming home to, you know, or waking up to. It's quite wild. No kidding. (laughs) The only thing really predictable, I think, is death. So yeah, <laughs> not so bad having everyone unpre- take comfort. Take Go comfort ahead. in the unpredictability. <laughs> it means you're alive. Oh my god! Um, you've done a lot of. You've talked a lot about getting sober, and um, I don't need to rehash. Uh, there's some. We'll link to a couple of things where you've talked about it. Um, I'm I'm interested, just I guess, in starting first off. Uh, I have. I am, uh, over the last 10 years of my life, slowly become more and more sober, especially from alcohol and now from cannabis as well. And um, so 
I was, I guess, the reading your interviews and thinking about your conversations about sobriety, thinking about my own relationship with alcohol. I've, I don't think I've ever considered myself having a, a, a problem with alcohol, though when I think back to my 20s and my binge drinking and that being explicitly attached to any social encounter mm-hmm. and, and, and act- interactions I was having. And it's, it's, um, it's bizarre, I think, what we, I guess, what we accept as normal behavior around yeah. alcohol. Like our yeah. society has yeah. this really strange relationship with alcohol yeah. like it's really normal yeah yeah we've normalized it to a point of um encouraging it um so yeah. much so that when people try to quit whether they think they i mean to whatever degree they find themselves on the spectrum of alcohol use abuse and dependency whenever they try to quit oftentimes people are met with resistance so we might say what kind of culture is encouraging their people to pour ethanol essentially down their throats and what would happen if we were all sober or more sober and when did this become normal and how through I look back at that time how throughout those years was not someone not saying provide you know providing alternative ways and and why did the culture move in that direction at all it's been like that for a very long time yeah yeah a lot of what I realized I was doing um, was self-medicating from for stress, you know. Um, for the first two years of my sobriety, I followed a program called Hip Sobriety. And um, Holly Whitaker is the writer, and she is a fabulous writer. And uh, she has a manifesto on the first page, and it's just really contemporary language that I find that our generation can step into and say, hey, maybe this is me and maybe I could be dry curious and, and sort of explore what, what, dry that might, <laughs> what that might look like. And um, how do I admit that I have a problem to my family or how, what, what should I fill my fridge with? What books should I read? Who could I hang out with? Um, what will I grieve? Where, where, where can I kind of go from here? So she has all these wonderful articles and she provides like a holistic approach to sobriety, which people may perceive is different from AA in that, um, and, and also you can find it in your the privacy of your own home. So I think for a lot of people who are struggling with alcohol, hip sobriety is great because you can kind of secretly Google um, and look up. So I, I decided I was going to quit drinking a year before I quit drinking, and I spent most of that time reading. So I was still drinking throughout that year, but I was reading and I was... I had a strong feeling of companionship and kinship and actually true friendship with these authors because I was like, that's me. That's who I am. Now, Holly doesn't identify as an alcoholic. So for a while, it took me some time to um, step into the AA program. But since then, I have. And I'm finding that second layer of healing um, through through visiting the steps and, and finding groups and camaraderie and true companionship, you know, real friendship. That's not just your fake friends online, which I think is healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Your imaginary friends on the blog. I'm like, I'm pretty good friends with Holly. And she's like, I don't know who this woman is. Yeah. Um, what did, what was, what, when did you realize you had a problem? What was that spectrum? Like, you know, what is it for everybody? It's different. So what did that mean to you? Like, what did it mean to you to have a drinking problem? What, it, what did that look like? Well, it was, you know, I've always had a contentious relationship with alcohol now that I look back, but that's very hard to see at the time. So what I think what I've learned, a lot of people with a drinking problem actually 
um, catch on to is the contagious joy of sober people around them. They see something about people around them that have quit and they kind of know that they, you know, they've Googled, am I an alcoholic? Um, But if, if they're having trouble um, digging into that, what happened for me was that I met my, a friend and uh, we were out for, for brunch and she had just gotten sober and I said, well, how much were you drinking? And she said, oh, you know, every second Friday, four or five beers. And I started laughing because for me, that was like every day. And I thought, wow. If, and she said, this is the best thing that has ever happened to me. It was like a conversion moment. She had had this, she had this glow around her that was undeniably beautiful. She was just vibrating on a whole other level. Like she had just found God, you know, and she, and she had. She had stepped into this other spiritual realm. And I thought, wow, if that can do that for her with what I perceive to be so little of a problem, what would that do for me? And that was like, she planted the the biggest seed. And then a year later, you know, I eventually ended up quitting. Wow. Yeah. And you were, so were you just drinking casually every day? Is that? Yeah. Like, um, I don't know if I would use the word casually, but, um, you know, yeah. Intentionally drinking, drinking (laughs) structurally. I don't know. Yeah. I put a lot of effort into that, Steve. I was... Um, I was just drinking, um, yeah, enough, you know, it was time for me to retire. I was drinking a lot at home alone and stuff like that. So, right. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of it had, like, when I look at it now, it had a lot to do with, um, and still like my life is full of a lot of responsibility. Every area of my life, I'm responsible to my staff. I'm responsible to my family. I'm responsible in my friendships. Um, I like to show up for people and, and I take a lot of pride in that but it was a place that I could go where I was just like oh fuck it who mm-hmm. can like let's just I mean totally no one can know about this but it, and then I just would suffer so much shame the next day that um, but I never drank in the day and so there's always I mean when you sort of talk about when when Holly introduced that spectrum of use I really liked that because I thought oh anyone can step into this and say this isn't working for me I'm ready to yeah, let go. Yeah, you don't need go. to be drunk all the time. Exactly. Right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's what I was interested in. Yeah, that to me is like was the most exciting news. And also like that I didn't share the first line says you don't have to hit rock bottom. And I was terrified. Like what would rock bottom look like? I don't even want to write that down on a piece of paper. I don't want to have X happen so that I can then, you know, and now that I've been in AA for sort of like six months, I have heard every story. I mean, yeah, you've you seen it. the bottom have, seen from many the people, bottom right? And you've seen people, they are, their intelligence is not saving them. Their money wasn't saving them. They're, you know, they had, they have been estranged from their children. People, the, the most crazy stories, I mean, the most amazing stories too, but the hardest ones to hear are people who were sober for 20 years, Steve, people who were sober for seven years, two years, nine years, and they went back to drinking because they thought they could drink normally. And, lost everything again it's one thing to lose it once you know to really i mean to really hear people's stories it's it's a program based on people sharing standing up and sharing their heart and just literally standing at a mic and saying like this is what happened to me how it was and how it is now and that's the simplicity of the program it's beautiful yeah uh it's humbling it must be really it's very like oh shit you know you it's uh yeah it's, it's interesting what you just mentioned too, uh, just before that about, and and I think this was my relationship with alcohol and cannabis too, was 
you have all these responsibilities and all these people relying on you. As an entrepreneur, that is the name of the game. And then as a parent, that is the name of the game. And as a mother, that is the name of the game. And a wife and all these different relationships. Yeah. And that these are escapist tools, right? Weed, cannabis, like any of these, or sorry, alcohol. These are escapism. These are methods of jumping in yeah. a box and disappearing from yourself too. And also separating from the pressure you put on yourself. Yeah, and I think that... Um... It, they they have a saying in AA, it's like it works until it doesn't, right? Yeah. Like and it, it did. And in a way, like I think I got out just in time. And so I'm able to have actually a reverence towards alcohol. I, I know that's that might sound a bit like a bit of a uh, strange, but I, I actually respect it because I had to leave it like a lover that you're like, Thank you, that was enough. You got me to this place and now like that was toxic. But and not being like proud of, of how you got there, but it was a bit of a life raft to be honest. And, um, I think admitting that has helped people kind of, um, be like, and it all helped me to, to let it go. You know, I could see this mountain. I was halfway up this mountain. I could see myself and I was carrying alcohol and I, I wouldn't, I couldn't get to the top. It was like, you have to let this go if you want to get to the top or you can, you can stay here. You can keep this. You can hold on. It's an interesting analogy because you you just almost referred to alcohol as carrying you for some period. And then at some point you realized you're carrying it now. Yeah. And to keep moving up. Yeah. That had to go. I mean, anyone who's ever gone camping with a 24 pack of Coors Light knows what I'm talking about. You know, you can only carry that so far. You got (laughs) to, you got to. More of a driving camping situation. (laughs) tailgating <laughs> you can't hike black tusk with that i'm no. just saying though people have tried probably yeah um how much of that was escape from your besides the external pressures how much of that was escape from the pressure you put on yourself or the the inner turmoil or lack of inner peace yeah i'm still unpacking that i think that it's so right now it's like a tangled knot of like a big ball of yarn and I'm really just starting to kind of I'll pull those pieces out to be honest um some of them are still mysterious was I was I um self-medicating stress um am I um you know very tall able-bodied high-functioning firstborn girl yes um did that have something to do with it yes um am I am I sort of you know bossy and controlling at my worst yes um so you know, where was I, how much of that pressure was coming from inside and how much of it was from the outside? I'm still learning a lot about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I I think I asked that out of self-interest because I think for me it was dulling my own brain so I could stop thinking for a minute. Like I could stop constantly working in my mind on things, on myself, on the situation, on whatever, just like yeah. I mean, I do, I think that's a really important thing to talk about because, um, I was, you know, um, identified as gifted or very bright at, in grade five. And then, um, always felt this, this brain was like on, 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 it, it never turned off. And, um, my grandmother is one of my soulmates and she drank a lot towards the end of her life, especially. And, so uh, one of the big reasons I quit was because I realized that I have a genetic predisposition towards alcohol mm. um, abuse, but also because I inherited her mind. You know, I I was, and my mom has it, you know, we have this this brain that just goes, 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 and we, I've had a lot of trouble 
um, being able to stop that. Because I think one of the things that is a challenge for me and anybody who's kind of suffering in that way is like, it's also an incredible gift. Like my strength is my, my big, bright, beautiful brain that can go a mile a minute. That's how I problem solve things really quickly. That's how I help my friends. That's how I'm, you know, um, able to respond to situations and kind of pivot. Like those are a lot of my strengths in business, um, and at home and, um, that brain, I need, I need to continue to learn different ways to calm that brain and, um, you know, through yoga and meditation and, and so forth. So yeah, we're yeah, getting there. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a, <laughs> it's a process. This isn't about a, I, I, I talk to a lot of young people these days and I think the only thing I want to tell them is there's no finish line. There's no, there's no perfect place you're going to get to. And everybody keeps telling you that you just need to do well in college so you can get your first thing and then you can get this and then it's going to be great. And then you're going to be an adult and everything's going to be finished. And it's like, no, mm -hmm. no. Um, I think anytime you take something away, you have to replace it. Um, mm -hmm. otherwise you, it's very hard to, I think a lot of people who struggle with getting something out of their life is that they don't replace it with something healthy and new. So what does that look like? And maybe you're figuring that out, but where are you at with that? Yeah. I mean, right from the early days, I, I knew that, <coughs> excuse me, my, um, my mom is the, was the head of parks and recreation for our, our, um, our community. And so, and my dad was a professor. So I grew up with these strong tenets of like teaching and moving the body. And so I knew early on in my sobriety and through reading some stuff, um, through hip sobriety that, um, exercise was going to be like a huge part of my healing. And it's, um, definitely been my companion in, in sobriety. Um, and I've had a really strong yoga practice over the last year plus, and that's been so exciting, mostly also because it's been incredible to watch my body learn something new. So mm -hmm. through starting basketball at 34, like refining basketball 20 years after playing basketball only for one year at the age of 14, refining that sport and the camaraderie of women and team sport, and then finding a new practice, which was yoga, um, this has just been the best, uh, really, that's like my, the highlight of my life. You know, I really, really, really am having a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah. And is that, um, is it, is it sports that helps calm the mind, like kind of work the energy out of your system the way you might've used alcohol before? Is that the main thing, yoga and, and basketball or the, um, well, I mean, when you quit drinking, that's quite funny. You have to do something with your time, right? You have to like, you gotta, and, and I also say this to people who are struggling, even if they're not struggling with alcohol specifically, I'm like, cut it out. If, you know, if you claim, if you're like, I wish I had more time, which is most contemporary humans these days, you, you cut it out. You'll be amazed at how much time you have. You know, you can go exercise at 9 PM if you're not like three beers in, or you can go sort of, you, you're, you can go to yoga at five, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and you've got all this new energy. So it frees up your time in this new, like really fun, exciting way. But to answer your question, it's like um, basketball specifically, I found in Montreal when I was um, 34. So I'll be 38 next month. Um, so I guess I've been playing for four years, but um, I hadn't really played that much. And I'm quite tall. So I was recruited when I was younger to play. And when I lived down in Chile, um, because I was literally like three feet taller than ever. <laughs> I was 5'11 five, five at the age of 12. So you can imagine. And they had lower hoops too. So I was pretty wow, good. Wow, you were just dunking was, on everything. Yeah, it like held a record at the school there, um, which was fun. But um, you refine, when you refine like adult sport, you refine these other parts of yourself too. Like what I've noticed on the court is that 
I'm a really good leader. Like I'm, I, I'm up and down the court the fastest. I'm not necessarily the best shooter, so I can feed it to the best shooters. I can see the game more clearly because I have this like new clarity from sobriety. I'm awake and I'm alive. And the, the best thing about sport is you can't think about anything else. So for that type of mind um, that's going a mile a minute, it's like you can't, you have to 100% be in the game or you're dead. Mm-hmm. You really like someone will flatten you and you have to be just so present that it's you're in flow state. There's no, there's no like considering flow state. You are in flow if you're playing basketball, you know, it's really fun. And I love the, um, the music and the fashion of it too. And the, the razzing each other and just the team element is just like getting to know a lot of people who don't give a shit about who you are also professionally and like they they're like i don't care you know how much money you make exactly they're like learn to dribble better like they don't care that you have accomplished something or or made a certain amount of money i like that it really it helps me to stay humble yeah that's cool yeah it's fun yeah that's interesting in terms of our core social needs like getting into the present moment huge and really important and hard for a lot of people to do flow states like achieving flow state and is is incredibly rewarding and and all sorts of good research on that obviously exercising and then the social aspect yeah which is really neat you actually get in you get well actual touch and and interaction that way but also just camaraderie and a different level of yeah, yeah. connection with people i think like you and i have known each other now as we mentioned for around 10 years and we end up what ends up happening is you end up hanging out with a lot of people who are like you. They're pretty similar. They're kind of in the same class. They kind of, you know, do the same type of work. Maybe they're creative entrepreneurs. And I think, um, especially I'm thinking about the time when we were first starting our businesses, we really needed that. You ne- you needed to find other people who were like you. And a couple of years ago, I really realized that I needed to spend a lot more time with people who were not so much like me. Yeah. I was like, if I get advice from another 37-year-old white woman, I am going to like, you know, <laughs> this is, you know, I need... I, so I started praying, I started praying, um, for older women to be brought into my life. Now, by the grace of God, I have three or four that I rely on so much. They're just these incredible older women that I've gotten to know through Hatch and Summit. And, um, yeah, I just, and on the court, there's people who are not like me. They're different, you know, and, and coaching. Like when I coached, I, I was the assistant coach of a girls program in Montreal and, that was by far, hands down, one of the best experiences of my life because these girls were young um, and a lot of them had never even moved before. We thought a lot, we talked a lot about movement. We happened to be playing basketball, but it, it didn't have a lot to do with that specific sport. We could have been playing soccer or whatever. But the fact that we were out on the court and um, I was able to lead them through moving their bodies and um, sometimes for the first time and and lots of children of, of immigrants or low-income families uh, it was just such a moving experience. It was really, it was just a blast. Yeah, and being around, I, I mentor inside of high schools uh, through an entrepreneurship program. And I just love being around that age group, like teenagers and hearing their ideas and what they're thinking about and how they look at the world and what the world through their eyes today. Yeah. And it's it's um it's really refreshing to just, like you you get a lot from it as, as much as they get from you too. Yeah. I love teenagers. I mean, it's difficult having your own, your own house. Your own are different. different. <laughs> but at teenagers in general, I've always done youth work. So I've, um, ever since I was involved in Young Life, which is like um, an outside of church, sort of Christian-based, uh, non-denominational hangout with teenagers program. And um, I was always like a camp leader or um, I ran a youth group in Nova Scotia for a while and have always done like youth in sports 
type stuff. And I just think teenagers are brilliant. They're just so much fun and so weird and, and so awkward. And, and, um, they're really hungry for more mentorship. You know, a lot of times Mm -hmm. they just are so starved for more people to be able to connect to and talk to. So doing Mm -hmm. that through sport is just so rad. Yeah. And then in in terms of your own mentorship, like you said, finding, um, mentors for you and people who are older than you I've been going through the same it's Mm -hmm. funny that you say that I've just Mm -hmm. really looking for those people in my life and really grateful to have some of them what is that did you have that five ten years ago did or is it is that really a new recognition that you were looking for that and needing that as I mentioned, I think like when I was in 2007, I co-founded a group for female entrepreneurs in Vancouver with Jen Ennis Hume. And um, we co-hosted 35 sit-down free events and have gone on to um, host um, re- peer-led content. So in the desert in in, um, in California, and um, it's now Jen and Lizzie Carp who run it. But um, What's the name of that? It's called Loaded Bow. Yeah. And you won't find it online. It's offline on purpose because um, what we needed at the time in 2007 was other humans to sit around and tell us how things were going and what was going on and what's a bookkeeper and how can we, what struggles were we were going through and stuff. So we shared our lives um, through story and through hanging out and um, went on to, um, you know, create these incredible relationships, business relationships, but also friendships. So, um, all that to say that in 2007, we created what we were missing, what we were longing for, what we couldn't find in Vancouver. Now, fast forward, I mean, the internet is in a totally different place. And um, there's all sorts of stuff. People might, this age group might say, oh, well, there's lots of stuff like that now in Vancouver. And it's like, well, at the time, we couldn't find mm-hmm. a lot besides FWB, um, Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, which is wonderful. And um, the group that you're referring to as well, TIE. Is that the group that you were talking about as well? Uh, no, I like, go- that we volu- that we were judges at. Remember that young oh. entrepreneurs thing? I don't know. I don't remember <laughs> the name of that one. It's in high schools and it's on it's oh, on Yell. Saturdays. Yell. Okay. Yeah. So you would call it. Yeah. So um, yeah, we've we've both been involved mm-hmm. in that over the years, and so yeah, I mean, I think that um, all that to say that in this last year, yeah, my heart was longing for people who had way more experience. Yeah. And a lot more wisdom. I was um, starved for wisdom, like losing my grandmother and my godmother and having a mom who isn't an entrepreneur um, and just really was like had this um, longing to get to know women who had really been there and done it. I, I really needed that to take my business to the next level. And I realize now to like hear it from from their experience and how was their soul's evolution connected to this so-called success and was that real and true wellness like what did that look like yeah that's that's a deep question i think you start to realize as you start to have some success and you said that disparity between what you seem like on the outside and what's going on on the inside and trying to make sense of your soul and where you're actually at that's what I think at this point talking to these people about is finding people who have found that level of success internally and peace and and how did they put all this together is that what you're getting at or yeah for sure yeah exactly what is the lived what did the lived experience what was that actually like Mm -hmm. and how did that unfold what would you have done differently because I actually believe I was talking about this with one of my friends Lynn in LA um 
there's sort of like I see from from people who are a little bit older than myself, there's sort of six or seven big turning points. You get handed like one kind of cool opportunity and you take one really great choice and you make one little investment in a little condo and you get one down payment, you know, one loan. Like there's these kind of, you know, every seven or eight years or whatever it is, however that unfolds, whatever the number of that is, there's these good decisions that you can make that can kind of set you up to have a more like, I guess essentially to be more happy and healthy in your older years and then like letting go of what actually doesn't matter. I've spent a lot of time invested in a lot of things that don't actually matter and I had to really get clear with myself and still am getting clear like what do I actually care about and um, how can I let those other pieces fall away and divide my time accordingly with reverence, you know, with respect to what I actually care about. Mm-hmm. What's an example of that? Can you think of one? Can you think of something that you've let go of recently or that you're you're wanting to let go of? Or Yeah, I mean, I, so in my career, and I think something people would see online if they noticed in people that say to me often is like, well, you get, you're a real jet setter. You get to go every places. You're in LA or you're in New York. And so because I was in, I, I've done business in both places quite often and, and haven't really, really enjoyed those times and, and specifically enjoyed the people that I get to to sort of hang out with at that level of work that's happening in New York and LA. Um, one of the things that I'm really focused on right now is not hopping on the plane, is not chasing that, is not escaping. Um, I have to do a lot of hard work right now at home and I have to be very present to my kids. I'm saying that, I'm not, nobody's telling me that. I'm saying I'm called right now to a season of service. And so I am sitting in that and it's uncomfortable and it is boring and difficult and (laughs) (laughs) way less exciting than than hopping on a plane yeah and um i need to be in that in this season in my life yeah so i'm being diligent to that voice and it's very hard this is why we stay friends all the years we're in the same rhythms i'm i've been in a couple years of of trying to not travel that much and, and doing inner work and and work on the ground with my family and people and yeah yeah also you recognize in business like there's lots of money here i can sell the paintings here and people can we fly the paintings other places like i you know you really have to face yourself i wrote in my diary like how much do you actually need to be going there and um the other beautiful thing is that those relationships are already established so i'm trusting that too i can hop on a facetime or a phone call with people and i don't need to jump on a plane um, in order to be with them. Because um, you've put in the work. I put in the work. And our, you know, when your hearts and your souls are connected, we'll just pick up where we started off when things are a little different, a little more stable here at home. Um, but right now my family needs me in a different way that I haven't been present to before. And instead of sort of being in conflict with that, I've decided to take cadence with my life, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you find that you're, you go in, is there, is there an obvious cycle or is it always shifting where there's work that's internal or work purely on the work and developing a new set of a new style of painting or whatever? And then there's a period of getting it out in the world and being out a lot or a, a period of really just family time and not really doing any of it or, or is it all inter, is it always just. Yeah, it's a big jumble. Big jumble. I, you can't see, but Steve's moving his hands around in like big jumble, jumble circles. It's more like is, that. Yeah, the it's the jumble. <laughs> yeah, whatever you're doing with your hands there. That's, uh, you know, it's, a, 
here's the thing. It's a jumble, yes, in answer to your question. Everything's a surprise and you can only plan for a certain amount of things. We know this. I can set up a, you know, a decent studio and I can set up a really loving and, and uh, thoughtful staff. I have, as you know, um, been poor at implementing systems. It's not my strength. And that said, in, in <laughs> as the same, I know, as you know, um, these are a lot of our conversations uh, uh, over the years. Assistant. I think, yeah, uh, maybe we should have just just a pause button. We should have maybe said that my experience, my relationship with Steve has been me calling him once a quarter, usually on the verge of a nervous breakdown and crying usually and asking Steve for advice and um, receiving that through camaraderie and friendship. And I think we've both received a lot, but it's definitely been a lot of me calling being like, oh my gosh, I made a hundred thousand dollars and I hate myself. What do I do? (laughs) And feeling like you were a safe place. Often it has been the moments where you've you've had a great moment of success. You, you've mm-hmm. had a lot of inner mm-hmm. struggle with receiving. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a big theme. Um, it's been a huge theme and, and also, um, these miles, these so-called milestones that then didn't make me feel good. Um, yeah. These external milestones that we think are going to make us feel really good. That has nothing to do with feeling good. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about some of your experience with yeah, that because I'll it's something you, I also talk a lot about these yeah, days. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you kind of a funny one. I hope everybody can kind of, it was, I mean, here's what they say, th- this guy said on Sunday at AA, it's you have to maintain your sense of humor because quite frankly, it is so tragic. Okay, so this is a tragic story, but it's also quite funny. Um, <clears throat> I mean, and, and it's only a good story because it worked out. But um, when I, I remember being, um, at making $100,000. So I remember, um, making $100,000 as a young Canadian female artist um, was a very big deal. It was, it, 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 was. it did feel like a, an accomplishment in some sense, but it would definitely arrived at the darkest time in my life. And I remember being on my knees and crying in my Parker Street studio at 1000 Parker, just crying and bawling my face off. And I, one of the things I've done well is always maintained a writing practice. And I believe in that strongly because then you can see the words speak back to you. So if you keep those all in your head or in your heart or wherever they, wherever you keep them, jumble them or French press them down into your you know, stomach or whatever it is, you cannot see those words speak back to you. So that has been a good practice for me. It was writing. So I wrote down at the top of the page, what do you want most in your life? And then I wrote, I want a happy marriage because my marriage was so broken and so sad and so dark. And then I wrote the question, how much time last week did you spend on your marriage? And I wrote nine minutes. We had had sex for seven and I think I made him two coffees. Let's say, I don't know if I remember. And I had spent, if you told me that you were training for a marathon and you weren't achieving the results that you wanted. And I said to you, Steve, how much time did you spend training last week? And you said to me, nine minutes. I would say to you, you're not applying yourself. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, no, you put it like that. It's so, it's so real, right? It's like it's so obvious. It's so obvious. If you were speaking to anyone else, and so I do think that there are things we're crying out with our hearts. I'll just speak about having a happy marriage. You know, there are so many women that I know, and men, and every everybody who's in a marriage who's having a hard time, and there's there the cry of their heart is, "I wish that this was." easier, you know, and, and, and when you really get real with how much time you, 
okay, so you spent 15 hours at the gym. You spent 22 hours out for coffee. You spent 14 hours on Instagram. You spent nine hours fantasizing about an affair. You know, you, I mean, where did you spend your time? And if you are really honest, mm-hmm. I mean, so that was a turning point for me. It's, it's called um, responsibility, uh, self-responsibility, I guess. <laughs> There's probably a term. <laughs> but um, it's called not blaming the other person, I guess. And, and then it freed me. Um, I couldn't blame my partner. And then I couldn't blame my life. I could still have a shitty marriage and apply 20 hours a week to it, but at least I, I could take responsibility. There's such a freedom. freedom. You just said the word free. There's freedom. Right? Yeah. That is true freedom is yeah. taking responsibility yes. for your, for the things that you have created around yourself, yeah. right? The relationships, yeah. any, your business, your family, all those things. Yeah. And so one of the best questions we can ask is how are we participating in this? Like we're literally holding hands with something. And if we're, our participation or our non-participation so when I look at if my son's struggling in school how much time have I spent getting him a tutor or how much time have I spent you know if if the answer is very little then the results you know my girl the best advice I've ever gotten was my girlfriend Laura who now lives in Paris she said um listen to your life your life is speaking to you you know the quote is just listen to your life but your life I believe is talking to you all the time right and that we can, if, if, if we were really able to listen to our lives, there's so much information there. That's really beautiful. Yeah. The, um, I want to ask you about the journaling in a sec, but it's, it's interesting what you just said too. When you're reflecting on, you have say a, 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 a bad marriage and you want it to be better, but you often, and I feel like, and I, at least for myself, I've often ended up feeling more shame or mourning my own lack of effort than the actual thing itself. Like you actually just feel so bad about doing nothing about it that you self-destruct the whole, you know, you sabotage the situation as opposed to getting really real about what, what are you actually doing here? Yeah. That's so interesting. I think that you, you have to spend time. There's a few things. One, we're not very, we're not um, taught how to forgive. So you cannot stay married and not know how to forgive each other. This is very challenging when no one's sort of taught you, shown you how to do that, you know, um, and and to do it daily and um, practically, like to do it in a practical sense. Um, you know, when I have to say to my husband, uh, let's talk about forward motion. Let's just like press a reset button and, and uh, you know, just have a laugh and move forward and have a coffee and there is a time and a season for unearthing all of those deeper wounds and with therapy and reading and prayer and meditation and tantra and all those things. Great. In a practical sense, some days you just have to be willing to truly forgive that person. How do you do that if you've never seen that? Mm. Um, Exhibited. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had to teach ourselves how to do that. And then you have to be willing, you know, with somebody who's willing to also do that in the same, it's very challenging. And you're doing all of this in the privacy of your home. Now, thank God there's, you know, Esther Perel, for example, who's a fabulous writer, the best writer of our times, in my opinion, on, you know, long-term monogamous, you know, I guess she's not all pro-monogamy, but she's the you know, what is marriage? Just what is the function? Exactly. Functioning, functioning long term. Exactly. A long term relationship. And she says, never before has there been more pressure on a marriage. You know, we used to have the village was raising the family. Um, and 
we have so much pressure on contemporary marriage and so many people I see are suffering quietly um, in their homes, you know, and not being able to tell their friends. There's all sorts of shit that happened that I couldn't tell my friends because their answer would be like, well, then you should leave. Like when in seasons, when like, I, you don't, you don't deserve that. You don't that. deserve that. Go seek your happiness and find your bliss and eat, pray, love. Well, I mean, when you have two children, that's not always, you know, Esther Perel says staying is the new shame. And so I believe that we need to talk way more openly about um, what that's actually like and so that we can support each other and also not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think a lot of people have ended up getting divorced, not because they necessarily wanted to, but they really felt like there was no other option. And I know I've been in that place where I felt like there wasn't another option, you know, but um, it's beautiful on the other side. It can be beautiful on the other side. And I think that part of my journey has been testifying to that. Um, you know, is it still sometimes a hot mess, et cetera, but we've kind of come through to this other part where at least we're not triaging, you know, we're not like in this yeah. state of, you know. That's why also people don't recognize that any good relationship has ups and downs it can be daily, weekly, monthly, whatever your rhythm is, there is things you always have to continue working through and you have to continue facing them in the moment as much as possible so that they don't build up to be an unforgivable pile of mess. Yeah, exactly. I uh, think though what you the one thing I do want to mention that that is like that it's unlike any other relationship. So I think we don't have like for example, I would go to Loaded Bow or I would go hang out with my friends. And they'd make me feel good and they'd make me feel intelligent and stimulated and sexy and alive and interesting. And I would come home and I wouldn't feel those things. And so I would, there is no relationship like it. So I think that like, we don't have a model. We can't say like, well, my friend makes me feel like this because your friend, you're only with them for like two hours and you're, you know, doing something fun together. The point of friendship maybe is to mirror each other and have some fun and share camaraderie, but to be deep in it with somebody who's your financial life and your sex life and the parent of your child, like it's so many roles and it's so much pressure um, that I think that Esther Perel and, and, and some other writers um, of our time are doing a good job of like mm. making it okay for us to start to unpack just how much pressure we're putting on each other in that one role yeah what um where would somebody start with esther perel what's is there a particular book or to all of her books her good books are great the two ted talks i would start there yeah they're just wonderful yeah yeah thanks for sharing that i i think people don't realize that a relationship is often just a mirror on yourself as well and on the work that you need to do i think that's my experience is that if I just keep working on myself, I'm usually making my marriage better. <laughs> like, uh, it's usually not about the other person's behavior. It's usually about yeah. your own, at least for me. Yeah. Um, of I course, think, it's a it's a mix, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've both been fortunate. I will say, like, the one other, the thing I always preface that was saying, like, I have a partner who's willing to read books and go to therapy. Mm -hmm. so I think we both have that, and so without that. You I'm, might not have yeah, it. I'm not quite sure where or how someone would survive. That's right. I guess what you're talk, speaking to is some level of equal, at least roughly equal level of commitment to moving through this. Totally. And right? those can come at different seasons. Like there's been times when, I, when I've been yeah. like, oh, fuck it, I'm out. And then he's like, read this book. And I'm like, fuck you. And yeah, I like, know. One person's you know, say, towing what? the cart exactly, forward and one person's yeah, trying right? to jump right. off the yeah, cart. Yeah, someone's got their foot out the door and the other person's going, no, come to, come back to bed, honey. Let's try it again. Yeah. 
And so I think that like being okay with, with one person kind of, yeah, there has to be somebody who's a little more in sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah. And as, as we are individual humans, we're each going through our journeys and there might be a period where you just have to be patient for the other person and wait for oh them gosh. to come back to the table. Yeah. I see it like planets, you know, that are circling. It's like, he's going to come back, you know, and I can see it. Like there's, I mean, I think part of like why I was moved when you say like, does 25 year old you, what, you know, what would you think of this at this point? Or did you think this was possible? It's like, I see just speaking frankly about marriage, like there's ways in which now I get to live permanently with this partner who's the father of my children and seeing him move through his own healing. Like I wouldn't have been around for that had I left. And I'm still moved by like getting to witness that. Hmm. It would have been so tragic to have missed that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I always think about my 25 year old self had no idea that any of this was a thing. Yeah. Like that's part of it too. Yeah. Yeah. And what I wanted when I was 25 was probably just totally like not well just not I was gonna say totally dumb but that's just being mean to myself but just totally different yeah and dumb (laughs) (laughs) and maybe a little dumb (laughs) but yeah you had no idea the richness that life is uh you just don't at that age I don't think it's almost impossible to unless you've been through a tremendous amount by that time yeah I mean the only thing that the one of the things that I had was um a great feeling of companionship with God at Mm. the age of 12, I had, um, what we would call in, you know, sort of contemporary white church was a conversion moment Mm. and, um, tears of love and grace. I felt the Holy spirit move through me. And so I have always known that. So that companionship, like knowing God at such a young age, um, it's still a mystery to me why I still went through so much shit and self-destruction like that. Like I said, I'm, I'm just starting to unpack that. Um, but I did have this friend, this friendship with God that I knew from a very young age. What, um, how has your perception of who or what God is or your relationship with God changed since then or over the time? Like, I'm, that's a huge question. So, (laughs) but, um, I guess if you think back to when you were in your teen years and your and what you believed God was or what you saw God as, or even just your relationship with spirituality or religion versus now, is there a big shift there or not? I'm sure like yeah, I guess I would have I would have self-identified as a Christian at the time in terms of if we were to to you know call it what it was. Uh, it was a very Christian experience. I was having, but what I was having, when I, I look at it now and, and I will still stay true to is I was, my first love was Jesus and the Jesus that I met, um, through all of my experiences, because my parents brought me to a really liberal left wing, um, the woman was a pastor of the, you know, female pastor, the United church, um, kind of experiences and these really kumbaya type camps that really let us unfold, um, because I wasn't, like dogma wasn't shoved down my throat, I got to experience um, a Jesus that was so loving and came to be nomadic and poor and let, you know, 
prostitute wash his feet with her hair. That is the Jesus that I came to know and love. So as I walked through my life, I had this companionship with this role model um, that was, yes, in the church, but I was very fortunate that I was always told that I had access to, to through praying and worshiping, can put on worship music at any moment and, and be with my God. Um, I was not um, burdened by what I think a lot of people would um, accuse the, the contemporary church of. Mm-hmm. You said you would have uh, re- referred to yourself or identified as Christian. Do you identify as Christian today? You know, that will always be my first love. That will always be the, the place that I... The God that I worship now, I recognize. You sort of asked if God is, you know, in us or around us, and and my my practice now is so much more multifaceted. Yeah, that's what we were talking about the other day. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a. That's what I. That's what I was interested in getting into with you. I think um, I've had my first. Well, I don't know if it was my first. I think in my teen years, I might have had some communion with God. I don't know what I would have called it then. Maybe I would have called that. Getting high, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. Um, We hit the bong and then we were able to. In the past year, I've had, uh, I have had experiences with God and, and um, I guess I'm interested as you've, as you've evolved yourself and when you're young, you, you were handed a God, you were handed a belief system you're handed a structure to go with God, right? Mm-hmm. And how much of that has has dissipated or remained or become stronger or how much of that is part of the relationship with God? Like I get that that was the pathway to God for you mm-hmm. and the pathway to spirituality for you. Is it still the the vessel mm-hmm. to to God for you? The thing is, is that it's, is it the be all end all? No. Um, but I think that one thing that we're suffering under right now, our generation, is um, way too much choice, right? We suffer in the toothpaste aisle. I can I cannot choose. And I'm like, they call it decision fatigue, right? Um, and so I have found one of the best things about choosing a religion is that you just get to go there and you can just kind of get on with worshiping. And I think that there's something... You know, to to borrow contemporary Christian language, um, I would say that we do have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And all of us are running around trying to fill that um, with alcohol, exercise, love, whatever it is. Work. Good, bad, work, 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 work. I mean, Rihanna even wrote a song about it. So there you go. And had to say it five times. So, 500 times, 5, actually. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know... To, to satiate that, to be able to, to fold your hands and be right away in exact communion with God. I think I heard, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of Krista Tippett, and um, she interviewed Jonathan Rowan, and he says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. You know, and then he went on to say, I think that at least we should have, we should be less allergic to the language of religion. Right. 
So that, yeah. I, yeah. So what I find when I go to talk about anything, you know, seven years ago, I was at a friend's place in San Francisco. We're up late talking. I mentioned I'm a Christian. Sort of, I have to preface it by saying I'm a left wing, really liberal, really open, really like, you know, yeah. pro choice, whatever, Christian. And we were up till, you know, and then we're up till 2 a.m. and he's arguing with me. I said to him, How own, can you be Christian? How can you be Christian? Mm-hmm. So I find everybody has a tolerance for you to be anything but that. And I said to him around 2 a.m., had I said that I was some sort of a Wiccan, you know, Buddhist, Buddhist anything. yogi, anything. anything except for that, mm-hmm. you never, we would already be in bed. We'd be asleep by now. Why, we would not be having this conversation. So we have to be less allergic to that language. If we're going to be so open-minded. There has to be more tolerance for what you know some people would call the g-bomb you know i I forget who said it but it's you know you can't i can't say god and you're just like allergic to the word and we can't even you know why is that one off limits right and um do do i recognize that it's caused people so much pain and and all that i think that's what's i mean that's what the christianity is what has inflicted a lot of dogma and pain and abuse and things the organization of it not not the god part (laughs) And not not having spirituality part, and not not Jesus necessarily. And I'll I'll just say that I I now use the word God a lot, and mm-hmm. I I wouldn't have used it a couple of years ago. Um, it doesn't mean I don't go to church, and I'm not a, I'm not I don't believe I don't subscribe to any religion. Um, but I agree with you that we we have a well, I don't know if I'd say a God shaped hole in our heart, but that is an interesting way of saying it. That we we have a a lack of connection and spirituality in our society today that is extremely painful and that we're trying mm. to, f- and that we've been told we can fill in with things and with external achievements and with success and with money. And there is nothing that fills in our inner relationship because when I talk about my relationship with God, I'm talking about my relationship with myself, with, with life. I guess that's what for me mm-hmm. what it means is a relationship with life and that and that means and it doesn't it's not about loving me and thinking I'm great when I think I'm great I think all life is great mm-hmm. it's a relationship there and I think for me that's why I find that we're that's what I think about the most I think that we're just missing church and I don't mean we're missing the mm-hmm. Christian faith or the Muslim faith or the other faith or whatever we're just missing faith in something greater than our day-to-day lives are, are, would you agree with that or augment that or? Yeah. So I think one of the things that I got a few few things, no, I wouldn't argue. I think a few things. One, um, I got something at church. I still get something. I go to church every once in a while. Um, but it is not like my main practice. Um, I get something there that I don't get anywhere else. There is, I don't go to work and get to like put my hands up and, and sing you know, and, and get to worship God publicly with a bunch of people. Um, there's a community in AA and in church that I've found where someone will bring meals to you if you're hurting. Someone will drive you home. Someone will pick you up if you're broken. Someone will take care of you. If people are hurting in that way, in like a real, like, I think people have a starvation for a community, right? We're trying to create these in like these new sort of like digital ways we I, you know we we use the word community so much um 
in and Vancouver. It's, all, it's almost and all bullshit. It's all bullshit. And when you go to AA and you see, for example, a true community that's functioning off of donations and there's no leader and everybody's like loving each other, physically loving each other as a verb, you know, as a thing that they're doing unto each other, it and and that they're sharing um, their souls and that they're a is a great example because you're allowed to come to it with whatever higher power, but there has to be a higher power. You cannot just be, um, or the, sorry, the, the, the mandate or the sort of, I don't know, the manifesto or the, yeah, like there has to be a higher power. You can't just be your own ego, you know? So it's a good example of, it's a multi-denominational place where people are coming together and they're all saying, got God check now moving forward, you know, what, you know, how, how we worship and how we got there is sort of secondary to like, is there one? And are you actively every day seeking their will, you know, for your life? Um, it's about something else outside of you that's governing you that you're not, you know, not necessarily, um, in charge of everything, which actually also alleviates a lot of stress. You know, if I'm going with the flow moving with the Holy Spirit, wow, like my life can kind of open up in new ways that I'm not the boss. I'm not always in the driver's seat mm-hmm. and kind of calm my head and my mind. So what I worry about in us not choosing and us coming to this sort of smorgasbord of of like sort of open-ended, like for example, what I hear about a lot in the contemporary sort of our age group, um, the spiritual life that people are seeking, say in Vancouver. Um, or anywhere. Honestly. Or anywhere. <laughs> But just as a microcosm of like an ecosystem yeah. that we know, um, I see, still see people very, very, very starved. Yeah. Like hungry, you know, yearning. They're like, okay, I'm spiritual. Now what do I do next? Yeah. I don't even, yeah. I And and with a lot of the men I talk to who are in their late 30s or for early 40s, some of them have no idea what the word spiritual means. I ask them if they're spiritual. We do an exercise in leadership work where you do the balance wheel, which is different aspects of your life. I don't know if you've seen it, but they'll be like your family life, your your personal life, your um, learning, all these different things. And one of them is spiritual. And you're just basically rating out of eight. Where are you? How is your wheel of life? How full mm-hmm. is it or how unbalanced yeah. is it? And I've definitely had a lot of men look at me and go, and I, and probably with women too, it's just, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know, like they have nothing um, to connect to with that word at all, let alone a whole bunch of uh, sort of false things to connect to with that word. I think that what, one thing I was thinking about the other day was what would happen if we suspended our disbelief? You know, if we didn't meet that if we had that question rose up in our soul or in our body or in our heart or at a sunset or through nature or through a friend who goes to church or through yoga, whatever, if in that moment the question came up, what if there's a, and we didn't dampen it with disbelief, what would happen if we set ourselves up for belief, say for a period of time, like say for six months, we just started going to church and pretending, you know, almost just suspending our disbelief, sitting at the sunset, pretending that God was real and seeing what might happen. Could I be filled with the Holy Spirit? Could an all-loving, all-knowing God come and meet me here? If the physical is not prepared for holiness, I think that we're consistently going to be met with disappointment. We need to be willing to move our body 
through an open, like there ha- the starting point has to be an openness, whether that's a cry for your heart, from your heart, or an opening of your hands, or a, you know, a worship song, or laying on your back, whatever act it is, the body has to be open, you know, in order to prepare the heart to be open as well. And um, can you try to describe what you mean by Holy Spirit? Because again, that's another term that I'm, a lot of people are going to be triggered by. Or they're going to go, oh, shit, I thought I was listening to a podcast about (laughs) something totally different. And now I'm sitting here listening to these people talk about Jesus and things like that. And I'm I'm personally not talking about Jesus. I don't have any relationship with him. I think he was an amazing... uh, Prophet. Prophet. Yes, he was an he amazing. He was historically. Speaker. I mean, that, that that's yes, a he, fact. Yeah, no, he was an amazing earth, was prophet. prophet. Yeah. And there's been lots of amazing prophets that have yeah. helped bring this talking about the light, talking about. Yeah, for sure. I, I think they end up talking about the same thing at the root of it, exactly. and then we end up separating them and thinking that they're very different things. But yeah, what what do you mean by Holy Spirit? Well, I mean, you could call it some anything different, and yeah. many people in AA, for example, or in my yoga practice, would call it like feeling the love, like ultimately the love of God. Um, if that's an easier term for people to sort of, um, accept most everyone's felt that. So they felt that, um, something moved through them from the hug of their grandmother or a walk in wilderness in the woods. You, a lot of people have, um, sort of quote unquote religious experiences in nature. Nature is like ultimately, you know, something that is a, is a really, beautiful access point for people to be in awe, I guess, and in reverence and sort of like looking at the majesty of life and wondering, holy shit, I'm this big, but I'm this small. I'm this tiny thing, like in flying around in space. Yes. And, um, that's great. Like, yes. Yeah. How is that moving through me? And, you know, what could we learn from giving a little bit more respect to how that could kind of flow through our bodies. Yeah. Interesting. In our lives. Yeah. I guess my, yeah, I, I love that. I think that my reflection of that is this, what you said is this reverence for life and recognizing how big and organized and perfect life is because it's really easy to constantly believe that we are in control or that our lives are big, like our lives are very big to us and we're a tiny speck in a very Mm. perfect system that has been operating for millions of years in perfection. And that to me is what God is. God is all of life. If you look at it as a whole, is this perfect moment of everything just happening the way it was supposed to. And unfortunately we have will and egos and these things that make us believe that we're fighting against that or working against that or trying to figure out how to get in line with that and I guess uh, finding flow or finding um, reverence for the way things are is the way things are, and there is a bigger there's a bigger hand at play here mm-hmm. that we are part of and that we can engage with and that we can influence our surroundings by acting positively towards them and, and thinking positively and loving, um, but that ultimately there is a much bigger game at play here. 
Yeah, I mean, I have a very poor memory, so I never remember how big space is, if you think about outer space. Well, there's like two trillion known galaxies. Right. So, for example, that fact, I, I get my husband to describe space to me like at least a couple times a month. I'm like, tell me about space again. Like, tell me how big it is. How big is space? And he, he tells me, and I'm like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> this is, suddenly you're like, oh, well, this... Like my big, massive, important problems can dissolve away. And the other thing, the other way that you're, you can like stop being so self-absorbed as a practice is by being of service. Like at AA, when you see somebody who needs you or you have somebody who you have to help, like in the moment, who's in a worse position than you, you, it's like playing basketball. You can't possibly be thinking about yourself. So suddenly your problems dissolve, you know, not that you're looking at them going, well, they're way worse off than me. But, but when I ask, how can I be of service? And I physically enact that I can do, I can be in, in flow as well in the same way, you know, and, and be loving, like, physically acting loving towards others and be helpful. And I would say that all of the life in our body activates in those moments because we are in service to other life. And that is ultimately, we can have all these purpose statements and all these things we're trying to achieve in our life that's about us, but it's ultimately the more we are serving life, the more activated our body and our mind and our heart is going to be because that is what we're here for. Like we are part of life. And I would say- being in service is the best way to do that. Yeah. And the one reason I think people these days are hesitant, myself included, to call ourselves religious of a certain sect or denomination is the divisive nature of that language. Yes. So We need to reclaim that somehow. And I think that's going to start happening. I, it's already, yeah, it's, I mean, it's happening. It's happening right now. We're going to need to dig very deeply in the next coming times as humans into our spiritual lives. And uh a lot of us know this already and are really like pre- essentially preparing for that. Huh. I think that the more certain I become of God, I also must make more room for mystery. The deeper my capacity for the mystery of life must extend itself. Um, becoming certain of one thing without that is very, very dangerous. And I think that's where a lot of the pain that people have experienced or seen um, from quote unquote religion has been people making up their mind that it's a certain way and that excludes other things. Um, my decisions are not exclusive. My decision has to be that this worship also has a great, like grand capacity for the mystery of life and the flow and the connection that we're all experiencing together. This, this collective consciousness. Yeah. And I would, in my own experience, the more I accept and, and roll with that, the more peace I find because mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about every little tiny thing that happens. You don't have to make so many decisions. You don't have to constantly contemplate or challenge or work against or work blah, blah. It's just, just accept the mystery and, yeah. and be in the moment with that mystery as much as possible. There's a wonderful book about that. Um, have you read the untethered soul by no. Michael Singer? It's a I really, really, really good book. I haven't, okay. I haven't read it. Open that one. It's uh, not too long. And it's written in a very practical language. It's very approachable. And it really helped me to learn how to let go. I didn't know how to let anything go. Um, and I'm just really starting. Um, so for if you're sort of controlling by nature, 
Um, my hand is up yeah, in the room. Yeah, my hand is up too. There's only two of us and 100% of the people in this room are controlling. controlling. <laughs> <laughs> at our worst, you know, at our best, we're leaders. But um, that's well, a great book. Huh, yeah. Cool. And um, do you think there's a meaning to life besides what you've described in terms of loving and being in service? Because I think uh, that's how I'd boil it down. Yeah. Would you boil it down any other way? Yeah, I mean, I think I was I I saw um, four people that I know and love um, passed away over the last six months um, of 2019. So um, wow, yeah, it was a lot of loss in a small period of time, and um, ultimately, I mean, it's were we loving to each other, and and how were we of service? I think are that's what our family's going to say about us, or when we go. I mean, if if to circle back, if death is the only certainty, then um, we certainly can can love one another and mm-hmm. and be more of service. That's definitely where my heart's at too. Do you think about legacy or what happens to your essence? Uh, not not what happens to you after death, but legacy seems to be what happens to your name after death. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Some people have different relationships with it. Do you have any relationship with legacy? I've never really, I've kind of just been working towards getting into the moment. So legacy feels like a very like yeah. historic thing that you'd like to leave with the blah, blah, blah. I'd like, you know, my children to say that I was able to be loving and patient and kind and I haven't always been. And so I'm learning through them. And uh, so I'd like to leave this legacy of wellness, mm-hmm. you know, in my home. Like that's why I'm doing what I'm doing getting right with, you know, myself and, um, yeah. And also so that other, I I have a lot of people reach out to me online who look up to me or have, have gotten sober or young women who didn't know it was possible to be an artist or whatever. So that's my legacy in a practical sense of people, um, living their best lives and healing themselves. So Mm -hmm. I'm proud of that, I guess. Yeah, you should be proud of that. Um, so thinking about the folks that maybe that you've lost this past year or thinking about your own life, what does it mean to live a good life? Yeah, I'm working on being less frantic, less manic, less stressed out and um, present. You know, it really is. Unfortunately, that word's, you know, around a lot, being being present, but it truly is. I think it's the, that's the key, you know? being present in the moment yeah 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 beautiful yeah thank you zoe my pleasure it was fun that's it for today's episode if you enjoyed it make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening and you can follow along with my life on instagram at steve rio for show notes and other info about the podcast check out natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work while lowering the stress and anxiety you feel, definitely check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and my life, not only the quality of my work, but how I feel every day. And with that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.